Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. Your love is unending. It has no limitations. It encompasses us, your children, regardless of our background, and we are delighted to worship you. Help us as we continue to worship you now in the word, that we would draw our attention to your word, to what you have to say. Use your word in our lives by your spirit to give us a greater appreciation of you, to magnify your son, to point us to final, true, lasting satisfaction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some seek satisfaction through relationships. Others in their work. Still others with material possessions through being secure, whether that be physically secure or financially secure. Some seek satisfaction in drugs or alcohol or sex. Where do you seek satisfaction? And do you think that your satisfaction, what satisfies you, will stand the test of time? Will what you seek to satisfy you stand the test of time. The Bible consistently paints a picture of where true satisfaction comes from. And to get right to the point, true satisfaction is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the source of our satisfaction. There is a reason that Jesus brings ultimate and lasting satisfaction. He is beyond compare. And as we look at John chapter 6, kind of devotionally this morning, we want to notice how Jesus is portrayed in this text and what these portrayals tell us about him, what truths they tell us about Jesus. Now last week we looked at Jesus saying that I am the good shepherd. This morning we're going to look at Jesus telling us that he is the bread of life. And in coming weeks, we're going to continue to look at these I am statements in the Gospel of John so we can just get a flavor for it. Now, John is conveying this so that we have kind of an x-ray vision of who Jesus really is. The reason that John portrays Jesus saying of I am this and I am that is so that we'll have an idea of who he really is. He wasn't just a good teacher walking about the earth telling really good moral truths. He wasn't just a great moral example for us. The Gospel of John tells us who Jesus is. He is, in fact, the Son of God. As we take a look at this text, John chapter 6, we want to notice some truths about Jesus. First of all, in the first two scenes of John chapter 6, the first truth we want to notice is this. Jesus is not bound by natural law. Jesus is not bound by natural law. The context of John chapter 6 is Passover. Passover was near, it tells us. 
And you'll remember that in the process of what John chapter 6 is telling us, that there was a crowd with him when this Passover was drawing near. And he looked at his disciples and said, look at all these people. Where are we going to find bread for all these people? And one of his disciples said, well, 200 denarii isn't enough to buy bread for all these people that they even have a little bit. There's no way to do this. His disciples said, it's impossible. This is impossible. This is the context of John chapter 6. And what I want to tell you is that Jesus is not bound by natural law. What that means is, no, 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 disciples, this is not impossible. Now when we consider this, and we're going to dive into the text in just a moment, the fact that Jesus is not bound by natural law, doesn't that impact us in some way? Like, do you talk to God? We call it prayer. Do you talk to God? You ever talk to him about things that you just feel like this is impossible? I have good news for you. Jesus isn't bound by natural law. So you're talking to the right person. You don't have to look at situations and circumstances and say, what am I going to do? This is, this is no way this is going to happen. Even if we had 200 denarii and we went out and bought bread, it's not enough for everybody. What are we going to do? I have good news for you. Disciple, Jesus is not bound by natural law. We see it in at least three ways in these first two scenes of John chapter 6. First of all, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with how much? Oh, five pieces of flatbread and two small, to use the King James language, fishes. Two small fishes. Well, we call them fish. Nonetheless, it's probably not as much as one fish that you and I would pick for our own serving. Just two small pieces of fish for this little boy's lunch. Look, beginning in verse 5 of John chapter 6. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But, he said, uh, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Not just a little bit, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled... So they didn't want just a little bit. They must have an appetite like mine. Little, oh, if a little is good, a lot is better. <laughs> they, they ate to the full. 
So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Why, why would we want to throw away this supernatural blessing? Why just squander what God just created in front of their faces? Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. That's, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Does it tell us anything about Jesus' power? It's like, here, let me, let me tear a piece of this bread off for you. And a piece of this bread off for you. And a piece of this bread off for you. And a piece of this bread off for you. And it's like, I don't know, maybe the first five people worth, maybe it tasted like normal, fresh bread. But now you've got bread being distributed that was never baked or never made or never pressed together. It's like instantaneous, miraculous bread that just keeps multiplying from this tearing of bread. And then the freshest fish you've ever had. <laughs> fish that didn't even come from an egg. <laughs> it just kept on coming. Now, one time we were having lobster as a family. It was a long time ago now. My grandmother was alive at the time. We were having lobster. It's great. Or uh, someone cooked them. I don't know. I don't, I don't really throw screeching things into hot water. Um, but nonetheless, we were eating it, and one of them had no tail. It's like, like there, was, there was the crustacean part of it, the, the shell, but you open it up, and there was no tail. It was like, and my, my grandmother said, well, this is why I get them at Shaw's, because they sell the fresh ones. Now, I don't know if you know anything about lobster, but you can't get any fresher than alive. <laughs> you, don't, you don't take them not alive. So you can't get any fresher than that. Nonetheless, Jesus is distributing this fresh that is this fish that's as fresh as can be. They, they, they didn't even swim in the ocean or, or a lake. Nothing. These, this is the best fish ever. He's distributing it. How can this happen? Well, because Jesus is not bound by natural law. You can't do that. I can't do that. And that's just one of the miracles that takes place that shows his amazing ability that is not bound by natural law. You look at the very next scene. In verse 14, the people say, truly this is the prophet. Now, that is an immediate reference back to Deuteronomy where Moses said, yes, I'm a prophet, it's all good, but there is a prophet coming whom everyone's going to listen to. That's a reference to Jesus. And so this is ultimately, they're, they're saying, this is that prophet that Moses was talking about. Why do they know this? Because... They just ate some supernatural bread. And then Jesus recognizes what's happening. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Wouldn't you be? Hey, I ain't never seen nobody walk on sea before. We read this, and we've read the story, right? And we've read it in the children's version, and we heard it in Sunday school, and then some guy preached about it. Like This is... For us, it's like, yeah, Jesus walked on water. And then people kind of, oh, you must walk on water. You hear the, the, those kinds of expressions all over the place. We're, it's so commonplace to us. 
But try to get yourself in the boat. Put yourself in the boat, and the sea is just going all over the place. And you're thinking, man, I don't, we've been rowing this three miles. I'm about to die. I, I can't make it anymore. This, this, this is too much. And then you see Jesus walking on the water. No kidding they were afraid. That's, that's not normal. Uh, I want to tell you something. Jesus is not bound by natural law. You can't walk on water. Well, it must have been shallow. It must have been really shallow. Of course, if it were shallow, the boat probably would have tipped over, right? No? What do you think? Look <laughs> at all these people. Make, they don't want to believe that there's a God. So they come up with these, these counters to God's, they call them stories. Well, that's not a story. This is an account. Jesus is walking on the water. He's not bound by natural law. Here the disciples, they're frightened and tired. They can't find Jesus, and then he comes walking to them on the water. Well, that's only the second of the miracles. Look a little further here. Uh, it says in verse 20, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. I'm sure that helped. <laughs> verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Did you overlook that miracle? He gets in the boat. He's walking on the water. He gets in the boat. Ah! We're there. That, that's a little shocking. That doesn't happen. If he were on the shore, he wouldn't get in the boat, right? So I'm thinking this is another miracle. And this miracle, again, points to the same truth. Jesus is not bound by natural law. So they immediately arrive at the shore. Now, why does any of this matter? Do any of you guys pray? Who are you talking to? Talking to God. Listen, you don't, you don't have a right to talk to God. Did you know that? Except through Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and men. Jesus. So when you talk to God, you're talking through Jesus, and he can do anything. He's not bound by natural law. And so when we're talking about Jesus and we're looking through the Gospel of John and looking at these I Am statements, we're getting kind of a, an insider's view of who he really is. This is not just, hey, a nice little portrait or a motion picture or a snapshot. We're talking about really knowing who he is. And when we talk to God, we're talking to God through Christ. And Christ isn't bound by natural law. And so we can go to him with confidence and have great expectation that things will be exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Is that how you pray when you pray? Or are you just kind of, well, man, this thing is impossible. What am I going to do? Jesus is attributed as being the creator, so this kind of makes total sense. If, since he spoke the world into existence according to the biblical record, then what is it to him to make more fish? Since Jesus is the one who formed the oceans, what is it to him to walk on them? Since he made time and space, what difference is it if he gets in a boat and immediately they're on the shore? It, it's, it's of little consequence because he's not bound by natural law. He is eternal and all-powerful. This is Jesus. Looking a little bit beyond that, we're, we're learning some truths about Jesus and, and they're not completely related in every one of these places here. The second truth we want to understand about Jesus according to John 6 is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, you'll notice I already made reference to verse 14. It says, then those men 
when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Then when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So we've already have this glimpse at this point, the reason that he, he went away and then walked on the water and then he was on the other side of the sea, the reason he went away is because these people recognize there's some, some messianic overtones to him. And what we have to recognize, and we're going to see it in a, in a little portion beyond that, you don't get to choose how Jesus is Messiah. Notice the point is Jesus is the promised Messiah. And these people are recognizing some messianic elements of Jesus' ministry, but they had some other designs. Their designs were different than God's designs. Look down at verse 22. Verse 22. On the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there were, was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now Jesus has something to say to them. And we're going to see it in the next section. But know that they have this, there's a reason they're seeking him. And Jesus is going to tell them why they were seeking him. Because they had some bread. The reason you seek me is because I gave you something to eat. And for you, that's that's good enough. But that's not my plan. I didn't just come to make your bellies full. I didn't come just so that you'd have a great king who would free you from the bondage of Rome. I didn't come just so you, there'd be a chicken in every pot. That, that wasn't my plan. So they have these thoughts. Listen carefully. If you seek Jesus only on your own terms with your own agenda, you will find him entirely, you ready for this? Unfulfilling. If you seek Jesus on your own terms, with your own agenda, you will find him entirely unfulfilling. You've met people like this. Maybe you've had this same experience. What happens when we come to Jesus on our own terms, with our own agenda, we'll find him unfulfilling, and then we'll think, I tried that, and it didn't work for me. When in reality, you did not want or know what he truly had to offer. Let me have you think about it from this vantage point. I have met numerous people and tried to share the gospel and the truth of God's word with them about addiction Addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to various things. And let me tell you what happens with some that are in that situation. If someone comes to Jesus simply to rid themselves of some addiction that has gripped their lives, I will tell you as sure as you are seated in that seat that you're in, that it will not work. When someone seeks Jesus 
simply to aid in their recovery from some addiction, they have made their recovery their God. It's like putting the cart before the horse. Jesus frees people from addiction. He does. But he will not simply free you from addiction because that's what you're seeking. What Jesus is, is the one who will save your entire being from everything temporally and into the future. And as part of that, there'll be freedom from addiction. But far too many people are using Jesus like a good luck charm. Like getting up in the morning and getting on my knees and asking God to control my life. Like that is the, the recipe, the recipe to free me from addiction. And I'm telling you right now, that doesn't work. Saying words doesn't work. Going through rituals, even ones that have great truths in them, rituals don't work. Only Jesus saves. And when a person seeks Christ, not just what Christ can offer them, that's when freedom comes. So, Jesus is the promised Messiah, not the one conceived of in the mind of the follower. Does that make sense? It's very important to notice this. Because you may have had a very bad experience with Jesus. And I can assure you, it's not Jesus' fault. Jesus never fails. He's God in the flesh. He is all-powerful. Nothing thwarts him, his designs, his will, his purposes, or his power. Nothing. Jesus is the promised Messiah. As we follow a little further, thirdly, a third truth that we notice about Jesus from John chapter 6 is this. Jesus came to provide eternal life. Jesus came to provide eternal life. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Keep that one in mind, okay? We're going to come back to that at the end. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we might see it and believe you? What work will you do? Oh, I have an idea. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you guys say, oh, sneaky, sneaky. Jesus already told them, listen, the only reason you've come to me is because you want something to eat. Why don't you just believe me? I've already proven myself to be who I said I am. And they said, oh, oh no, show us something. Like, give us some more of that dandy bread. That'll prove it. Hey, listen, I remember when Moses gave us bread, and we followed him. We never disobeyed. Did you read the Old Testament? Any of you? Read the Old Testament? Did they obey Moses? Anyone? Anyone? Got that? No? No. 
No, they, that didn't help then either. So listen to Jesus' response to this entreaty for bread. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. He, he could have inserted here. He didn't, but I'm just going to do it just kind of for your own edification. Fools. I'm not attributing that to him. They attributed that to me. But he may as well have said that. You oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have told you. Fool. Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Now listen. The bread of God is not something, it is someone. Listen, if you eat the bread and the fish, you're going to be hungry again. I've come to give you something better. I am the bread that comes down from heaven, and I give my life for the world. That's what he said. I give my, he gives his life to the world. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. I, I want that bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, verse 40 gives us some insight here. Look down at verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him may have everlasting life. Now I want you to know this. Verse 40 serves as a very important interpretive key to this chapter. Look at verse 54 because there's a lot of confusion about verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has what? Eternal life. What's, what happens when you eat his flesh and drink his blood and have eternal life? I will raise him up at the last day. Look back at verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him may have everlasting life. And what? What will, he, what will happen? I will raise him up at the last day. If you understand that verse 40 is the, the groundwork for him using this imagery in verse 54 of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, a lot of the confusion goes away. He's starting to say in verse 54, I want you to participate in me. I want you to be one with me. I want you to be united together with me. I want you to be abiding in me. And he uses this illustration of eating him and drinking him. This is not about the Lord's Supper. Some people say it's about the Lord's Supper and and. Well, when we take this, this bread and we pray over it, it becomes Jesus' body. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're participating in him, we're eating his flesh, and we're drinking his blood, and when we're doing that, we have everlasting life because we've been part of this table. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus tells us in verse 40 what he's talking about. You believe in me? You have life. I'll raise you up. And just for another way to look at it, if you participate in me, you'll have life, and I will raise you up. And a lot of the doctrinal confusion is just moved out of the way if we just understand what Jesus already said before he said what would be kind of confusing if you try to take it literally of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So, 
With that being said, Jesus came to provide eternal life. He describes in those verses about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, he describes the necessity of participating in his flesh and blood. It's clear from the context that Jesus is referring to participating in him through, um, through his death, which is a bloody death. Now, what's the blood about? Well, again, we have Old Testament pictures. In Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 11, God's word says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, or in other versions, for the soul. So the blood makes atonement for the soul. So that's where the blood and the, and the broken body, he's talking about, I'm giving my life for the world. He said that earlier, right? And then he says, if you want to have life from me, you have to partake of me. You have to, to assimilate into me. You have to abide in me. You have to, what he already said is, believe in me. So he, he's making clear statements, and then he's making picture statements. They're the same thing. The clear statements, believe in me, you'll have life. The picture statements, eat me, drink me, and you'll have life. Both of them are saying the same thing. There's nothing new here in this section, just picturesque. Now look at verse 47. Verse 47 through 51, we'll see that Jesus' death provides God's people with eternal life. Verse 47. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. What does it say? And are dead. They sought physical food, and they needed it, but it only lasts as long as physical food lasts. They died. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. The one, excuse me, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is not bound by natural law. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus came to provide eternal life. Finally, in this text, we want to look at one more truth about Jesus. Jesus came to provide satisfaction. Jesus came to provide satisfaction. Look at verse 39 of John chapter 6. Excuse me, verse 35. We read it already. We're going to reread it. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Is he talking about physical things? It's not talking about something physical. He's talking about spiritual. Someone that comes to Jesus and understands that he is the bread of life that came down from the Father that gives life to the world, they will never hunger and thirst for something else. Verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will, will, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Consequently, verse, the beginning of verse 37 is telling us what that will is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And they, will, they that come, will he will not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, who's raised up at the last day? Do you remember from the text? 
Well, those that eat his flesh and drink his blood in verse 54. In verse 40, the interpretive key, really, that helps us is he that believes on Jesus. God will raise him up. Everyone who believes, God will raise him up. Because everyone that believes is a partaker in the flesh and blood of Jesus. How does this all take place? By the Father's will. That ties it all together. It just unites all of this. We have life because the Father grants it to us. If that doesn't give you a resounding hallelujah in your soul, then what's wrong? Verse 40, And this is the will of God, excuse me, the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He keeps talking about that. What kind of satisfaction takes place here? Well, I'll tell you that Jesus satisfied the demands of the law. That's not in this text, but that's true. Jesus satisfied the plans of the Father. That is in this text. But I think the big point here that we want to really drive home in our own minds is he satisfies the soul that's hungry for him. Jesus satisfies the soul that's hungry for him. Not what he has to offer us. Not the goodies. Not the freedom from addiction. Himself. The question is, is is he enough for you? Look at verses 55 and 56. We're coming to a, a close here. Verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, listen to what he says, abides in me, and I in him. So again, he's giving us an understanding of what this participation in his blood and his flesh is. It's an abiding in him. And later on in John chapter 15, he talks all about that. When we abide in him, there's fruit that abounds. Without him, we can do nothing. So he's talking about this relationship with him. The religious crowd wanted to know what to do. Verse 28. What do do we want us to do that we might work the works of God? Jesus told them they were responsible for one thing. Verse 29. What was it? Believe on me. Believe God's works in me. Believe me is what he says. That's the work. The religious crowd wants to know what to do. Jesus said there's only one thing. Believe me. This believing on him whom God has sent would result in eternal life, verse 40, and true satisfaction, verse 35. As we look at the very end of the chapter, we have this scene. And this is always true. Now listen carefully. Don't get restless. There's always a response to Jesus. There's always a response to Jesus. In verses 60 through 66, some walk away. Look at what it says. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? That's what Nicodemus said when Jesus said, You must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? This is a classic, I don't understand, I don't believe yet. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, disciples means a learner, not necessarily follower. Some of these people are not actual followers of Christ. They were learning from him to this point. He said to them, does this offend you? What then, if, I should, uh, if, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, listen carefully, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. There's one response. Nope. That's not the satisfaction I was looking for. I want some bread. I want you to fix my physical problems. I want you to fix my financial problems. I want you to fix my social problems. Fix all these things and you can be my God. If not, no deal. So we have the other response, however, verses 67 and following. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you was a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So some walk away, and some remain. I guess that leaves one question. Which are you? Which are you? Those who know you have and are the words of life. Or the other, hmm, yeah, you're not quite cutting the mustard for me. I have other things on my mind that I was looking to get out of you, and you're not giving them, so see ya. Which are you? Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We're thankful for Jesus. Help us as we celebrate the Lord's table, the supper that recognizes and remembers the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior the one who gave his life, whose blood was shed that we might have life, whose body was broken that we might have life. His wounds were because of our transgressions. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Father, for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus, that even while they're sitting here, observing the Lord's table, that you would open their eyes, that they would see who Jesus is and want him. We know that that will result in eternal satisfaction. We pray that you would do this. For those of us that are believers, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the blessing of remembering Christ our Savior, his broken body, spilled blood, his sacrificial atonement to pay for our sin, and your gracious, powerful raising him that we might have life. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.